Welcome to On My Own Dime. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. Today I'm talking with ambient composer and multi-instrumentalist Daniel Mothers. Daniel has played trumpet, drums, and guitar for a multitude of reputable acts in the UK since 2005. My favorite is a math rock project he performed with called DeGrasse. Currently he's working with Franco Fraze and composing for Sync. In this episode, Daniel shares what it takes to keep a band on the road and how they made it work. If you didn't know, it takes a lot of faith in your group, and everyone is frequently covering expenses out of pocket. During this interview, we experienced a poor connection from California to the UK. I'm working on improving our resources to remedy this in future episodes, but for now, bear with us because Daniel has a great story to share. So let's get into it. So I'd like to start out easy. Where are you from? Tell, tell us your name and where you're from. Okay. My name is Dan Mothers, and I'm from Norwich in the UK. Uh, it's the east part of the UK, like the bit that sticks out, if you look at the map, the bit that sticks out on the far east, that's, that's where I am. Cool. Um, I don't, you're my first friend from the UK. Born and raised, and you stayed there as an adult. Have you moved around in the UK, or? I've moved around, but not far, really. I'm actually from a small town called Spalding in Lincolnshire, which is the flattest part of the, the country. It's a lot like Holland. And um, I went to university in Cambridge, which is just south of that. And then after uni, went to uh, Norwich and, and kind of stayed here. So I've been here for about seven years now, maybe a bit more than that. Wow, that's cool. What did you study at Cambridge? I did that creative music technology. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's an interesting course. Lots That's very cool. Different things, some academic heavy subjects, um, like music concrete and stuff like that. And then we did some audio coding and super collider, as well as all like standard music production stuff. But yeah, it's quite a quite a broad mix of stuff. Wow, that's cool. So um where did that land you when you graduated? Uh, uh, interestingly, so when I was at uni, I started a band with some friends and um, played a lot of kind of gigs and then just kind of kept pushing that more than anything afterwards, which is why I ended up in Norwich because that's where those friends were from. Uh, yeah, I went to Norwich, which yeah, I didn't do a great deal of audio stuff after that, uh, audio jobs after that. It was kind of, how do I settle into Norwich and kind of get by, pay my way through life, afford rent and things like that. And, yeah. Uh, what did you play in the band? Oh, that was it. I, so it was like a math rock guitar band. <laughs> and did um, you play guitar? Yeah, yeah, I played guitar. Cool. Um, you know, that kind of tappy, jingly, jangly music. Anything you want to share? Can people find it? Uh, you might be able to find something. We were called Reno Dakota. Cool. Um, well, afterwards, you can send me some links. I'll have show notes. Um, and we can, we can link people to whatever you want them to find about you. Uh, That's cool, know, man. We're not really a band at the moment now, unfortunately. So. And when did that end? Uh, maybe like four years ago or so. Okay, so you were with them for a while. Yeah. So you just kind of found um, different jobs to pay rent while you were with them? 
Yeah, I kind of worked in shops and kind of worked my way up like a supervisor kind of thing. And, and that was kind of easy money. I could kind of go to work and then afford rent and, and then do my thing outside of that, which I kind of enjoy doing. But, um, yeah, now I teach. I'm a teacher, an instrumental music teacher. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, so I kind of work in at least seven different schools across the county. It's quite a big county. It's one of the biggest counties in the UK, so I kind of travel a lot. and um, I mainly teach trumpet, guitar, and drums. Those are my three main ones. And then sometimes we do some whole class stuff, which obviously can't happen at the moment too much because of COVID. It does happen, but it's not a great deal. So. Okay. You, so you play a wind, a uh, string instrument, and percussion. That's yeah. that's the gamut. Uh, yeah. What was your primary instrument that you, like, how did music come into your life? Was it through studying an instrument or? Yeah. Yeah. So I started at a, a really young age, actually. It's around five. And, oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah. What yeah, were you playing? That was the trumpet. That was my first instrument. And uh, it kind of started as a sort of, sort of joke because I was just really amused by the guy that came in and did a demonstration in the school assembly. So I was like, yeah, I'll try that. <laughs> that sounds hilarious. And then just took to it real quick. And it also got nurtured a lot by the teacher and my parents as well. So I was real lucky to have that. That's um, awesome. And you, yeah. you stuck with trumpet for how long? When, when did you switch to guitar or drums? So I actually took, so I, I was with the trumpet for quite a few years. And then whilst I was still in primary school, maybe, I think I was maybe eight or nine. Then I started the drums with also with having lessons from a tutor. Um, and then later on, when I was maybe like 13, 14, I took up the guitar and I self-taught that. That's cool. I, um, that's sort of similar to my story, I guess. I actually played clarinet. That was my right. first instrument. And then, uh, like in grade school, you know, and then my, you know, I got to like high school and that's, it's not cool to carry a clarinet around, you know. I was, I was very good too. I was uh, first chair kind of back and forth with another player throughout the years. Um, but yeah, it wasn't cool anymore. I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to play Blink-182 songs. Um, so I kind of switched out. And then my teacher said, like, please don't go. Like, you are the only person that knows music theory and, like, understands what I'm trying to teach people. So she got me to switch to playing the French horn. Oh, nice. And that's a very hard instrument. Yeah. Yeah, it's a struggle because you can real you can really easily split the notes on that instrument. And yes. obviously it's a different embouchure to what you've been used to, I guess. Yes, completely yeah. totally different instrument. Um, you know, a clarinet you can only play one note with each finger and a French horn, you're like yeah. you don't even you don't even need the valves really. They're there to help. <laughs> uh, but they, it came with free private lessons. And I, so I studied for two years and then I played a little bit in college, but I really was not of the caliber that you need to be. Um, and that didn't last very long. I just couldn't keep up. He tried, my professor wanted me to play the jazz ensemble. But <laughs> man, I could not do it. 
I couldn't do it. It was just too advanced for, for a person who studied only two years. Yeah. Um, because with the horn, they expect you to be able to transpose on the spot and sight read at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tried, uh, yeah, I tried to tell him, like, I cannot do that. He's like, it's easy. You just take that shape and move it up a four. Yeah. And then it's like, all right, let's try again. One, two, three. It's like, I want to be able to. I just can't do it. I don't have the skill. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so I can relate to that kind of uh, progression of, of not just sticking to one instrument. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool that, that you came from trumpet into the rest of the broad world and now you're in yeah, into production. Seems like a pretty good balance. I feel like I could cover a lot of even in social circles with different people that I knew like it was like a gateway instrument to lots of different people that I wanted to hang out with. And, you know what I mean? Because at the same time I, I did a lot of um sort of what the area bands where you, you go to the, the local um concert room band or whatever. And we have a county orchestra, and I join all these different things and do all the extracurricular activities. And then at the weekend, I go and play some like hardcore punk with some friends at a pub somewhere. And <laughs> you know, it's kind of like constantly churning out completely different elements of, of like opportunities to perform. Really, um, it sounds exhausting. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was fun. It's fun yeah. when I was young. So, how did you go from? primarily a, a performer with trumpet into studying, uh, what, what was the degree program? You called it something I'm not familiar with, music technology? Yeah, creative music technology. Um, yeah. It was kind of vague, really. Even the course was, it covered so much stuff. It was more, um, they were keen for us to kind of experiment with loads of types of software and they really pushed the audio coding and um, programming like Max MSB and Super Collider which I saw I was interested in but then yeah it, it was a tricky thing to use like it's not the easiest thing to basically talk computer language and are those platforms that kind of they're, they're built for like audio processing or I'm not familiar with the, with that side of the music world at all yeah uh, so it's syntax, so it's real coding, and, and Max MSP is like patch software, so you could kind of design a plugin, basically. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, but that was maybe the most like, part, but I think that's what they meant by creative music technology, because it was, it wasn't so much about composing and being creative in that sense, but it was looking at all the different ways you can create audio in, in, in every sense, essentially. Especially, particularly with computer-based kind of techniques. Um, yeah, that's cool. It's very different from performing. Yeah. Sure. And then we had one tutor, um, Julio Descrivan, who, he was so good at it. Um, he, he would kind of go to these, like, live coding sessions and just kind of sit there and type away while this all complete and noises were going on. Yeah, people would do it. <laughs> it's not for everybody, though. Yeah. I had I met a friend in college who wrote music using his Game Boy. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that? It, uh, I, kind of the stuff we covered because at one point with Max MSP, we I, I did a performance with like a, a PlayStation controller. 
and and kind of each button had a sample and different things. So it, yeah, you could do that kind of thing, but you have to program the software first to set yourself up. He had a cartridge that he programmed, and this, this is how he would write music. He also built guitar pedals. He was a pretty cool. He was a very unique dude for the program that we were in. It was audio production, so more more straightforward mixing and engineering. Um, and of course, you have like all walks of people there who are writing music, and you know everybody was quote unquote making beats. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so to meet yeah. someone like him was very uh, unexpected when I was at school and I asked him like, show me how it works. And he kind of like handed it to me and it was running this like, you know, it looked like digital rain running down the, sc the screen. Uh, and it was very cool. Like, you know, that eight or 16 bit game, game sound, uh, very retro. Uh, but that's yeah. cool. So, so that's the kind of stuff that you guys got into. So that would, I guess, poise you for a job working with what, like companies like Native Instruments or like uh, Output or some companies who do like third party or. Yeah, it would. It covered so much ground, really, because we also learned how to produce using Logic or Pro Tools, that kind of thing. Then we also used, uh, for a brief moment, we used Unity so you could learn how to create music for gaming. Um, and they, they kind of really set us up for a lot, a lot of success. And then they also kind of, we had a lot of access to all the facilities. So if you did play live music, you could go and use the studios and record or practice, use the practice rooms. There was really quite a lot going on in that place in terms of, a, of things for us to use um, for free as well. Obviously, after you paid your fees and everything, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was good. They had a lot going for it, and then it was a separate course for people who were doing audio music technology, and, and that was like way more hunkering down over mixing desks and being a audio engineer rather than a songwriter. Or something. Uh, and per it seems like performing and writing is what you really latched onto. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, so. Uh, performing has just been something I've done from a young age, so it just seemed like it, that's what I was doing. <laughs> I got to uh, I took a, a couple gap years when I was eighteen, worked in a factory, saved up some money, and bought loads of guitar pedals and all kinds of things, and then went to university at twenty. And uh, yeah, performing just seemed to be the first thing I wanted to do was find someone and start a band. You know? Um, and, and that straight away. So, <laughs> yeah, the performance thing was quite important. So after your uh, your band, it was called Reno Decoder, you said? Yeah, yeah. After they stopped playing, then what was the next thing that you got into? Uh, there, there was a, a rapper from a, a small town near, near Norfolk, near Norwich, sorry, uh, a place called Thetford, and there was a rapper there who I'd met through a guy at uni. Uh, the rapper was called Franco Fraze, and uh, that led to some real good things. Um, Franco was, uh, we got signed to Warner and um, played a lot of like real, real nice shows with the Radio One Extra Circuit and the Reading and Leeds Festival. 
um, played places like Shepherd's Bush Arena, you know, loads of big audiences and had a single out, you know, it was all kind of really good. That was 2015 when that happened and there was a nice little build up around that. And then we haven't done so much lately because I think we kind of got to the point where we were like, okay, we're putting a lot into this and we need to make sure we can pay rent because <laughs> it doesn't always give you the money that you'd expect, but that's how it goes, I think. Um, and what were you doing for for the group? So that, I, I played the guitar and the trumpet. Okay. And, uh, and I co-wrote a few songs as well. So, so he, was, he was the MC, and then you guys had a little ensemble behind him. That's right, yeah. Cool. I, that's that's amazing. You guys had that signed to Warner? Yeah, he, uh, he had this, uh, I can't remember what kind of deal it was, but they paid for a tour, and it kind of worked out nicely. Um, and I think just quietened down naturally. I think we were just about ready to kind of go back to our lives, go back home for a bit. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we were out, we were playing a lot of shows for over a year. I'm interested to hear a little bit about, uh, you said that you guys were putting a lot into it. Did you mean like your own money or just your time and yeah. energy? Well, because we didn't always get paid a great deal for the shows. So, you know, in terms of just being able to kind of eat and get there, it would be our own money. So your, so your deal with Warner covered just the bare <laughs> bones of the tour, like yeah. booking the venue and all of the logistical stuff, but not feeding you and housing you? Uh, well, the, the, so there was there was uh, there was some feeding involved. We had this Nando's black card, which meant we got a meal every night from okay. Nando's. <laughs> but I mean, like throughout the whole thing, uh, like a couple of years worth of, of playing shows, it was always kind of be like, yeah, go do this show. It'll be really good for your exposure and all this kind of stuff. So we play the petrol, we go there, and stay in a hotel, and often. Often the the, uh, the kind of payout from the gig wouldn't quite cover. There, there was five of us in the band. Yeah, that's what I'm interested to hear about. Um, what were those conversations like? Because, I mean, when you're just a single person, you decide, like, where do I draw the line here? Like, how, how much am I willing to put in on my own? Yeah. Um, but when there's five people yeah. and every, everyone has to decide, like, where do we draw the line here? Like, how many... How many nights at hotels? How many meals away from home? So, what did that sound like? Was everybody just fully whatever it takes? Yeah, yeah, it began that way for sure, and it, it kind of lasted right up until all of, the, all of a sudden we kind of just felt like we couldn't, and that was quite a sudden change, really, because um, it, it, you know, the shows were really exciting, and a lot of people responded to Franco, and, and it was really good to get out there and play shows. Um, so yeah, I mean, we were happy to kind of go out there and do it because we also, at that time, I wasn't self-employed and I could kind of work out my road to his work. I was just working in the shop um, and could book the time off right and kind of go out and play a show at the weekend. And, and some of the other guys were self-employed, so it was kind of flexible. Um, so yeah, we kind of treated it like, okay, we'll book a show at the weekend and that'll be our weekend away kind of thing. It would kind of work out that way. Um, but yeah, then 
we ended up playing more shows because of the traction we were getting. And then it would kind of cut into the weekdays, and, and that was where I guess it would start to get difficult for for um, most of us because it would, it would be so easy to take time off work because a day means less money from the from the day job. So yeah, that's tough. Um, did you see any value in? because you guys were independent, like being allowed to do whatever you want and play the music that you want to play? Or did you feel like, well, the label would let us do that anyway, so I wish we had a deal? Uh, well, yeah, I, I didn't really hear, I, I wasn't really involved in a lot of the conversations from the, from the label. I mean, we, we did the management and um, he was with the various artist management who, they managed bands like the Libertines and Charlie XCX, um, a whole bunch of other huge acts. Um, and while they were good, it was kind of like, it, well, it wasn't really our thing. Like this was Franco's project, and we always kind of went along with it because he was our friend, essentially. Um, and we were always basically saying, like, you know, this is your thing. You can call the shots on this. Okay. You know, if, if, if you need to find a way to make this work out and sustain itself, then I think you've got that with his responsibilities and obviously the area to cover. Okay, so you guys had a, def, a definitive leader. Yeah. Um, that, that's cool. That must be very important when you're dealing with, with a group of five. Yeah. Uh, imagine if, if everyone tried to lead, yeah. it could be a little bit difficult. So if, if you had someone designated to kind of feel like this is kind of my show. And I'm sure it helped that, like, you know, he was the front man and it was his name. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it was never, like, a, a difficult thing working with Frank at all. So I, I really miss it. Still could now. I think if we just made that decision, we could kind of get back out there now and do it. But we saw a little bit older. I personally don't feel like I've got the energy to be out every night all the time. I don't know how some people do it, but... You know, but I also, I kind of want to be at home. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was interesting. So it wasn't just, it wasn't the same five people throughout either. There were a couple of lineup changes. Drummers are always hard to find. I would have done it, but I was already covering two of the instruments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need a couple more arms and legs if you're going to do that. Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've found that too. I've tried to play with some different drummers. Um, but... I guess I, in one sense I was lucky when I played guitar in a band in high school. I put the, the drummer was very good, and I actually was just talking with him before I was talking with you, helping him set up a remote spot in his house so he can record for for me and for other people. But yeah, you know I was uh, 16. I'm 32 now. I still play with just that guy because uh, other drummers I've tried to play with, I. It just something doesn't click. Yeah. Um, so I definitely agree that that's it's hard to find a drummer who is very good and very available uh, and also easy to work with. Yeah, I feel like that's a that seems to be a standard. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely, it's, it's the most probably uh, mechanical instrument to to like to really master. So it takes somebody with a certain type of discipline to get it down. But, well, that's really cool that you had that experience of playing with somebody who was signed. Uh, yeah. 
we still kind of, we still talk, we send each other little tracks that we've done here and there with the aim to maybe do little side projects just for fun because we enjoy writing together. And yeah, it's turned into something real nice. So. That's great, man. So that kind of sounds like it, you said it naturally kind of uh, settled down. And what, what was next after that? Well, after that, um, I'd started teaching. So trying to balance a lifestyle where you're kind of out at night playing shows uh, and then going to a school the next day just wasn't cutting it. I couldn't really do that. Um, so, yeah, I started teaching and, and have been for the past five years. And I started off self-employed with that. So I was an associate to Norfolk County Council Music Service. Um, which is like a government-funded thing by the Arts Council. Uh, and, and obviously, like, they, they can get extra ways of funding so we can get paid by, I don't know, parents paying for tuition and schools buying into a lot of the different kind of things we deliver. Um, so, yeah, once the performing stuff settled down, that's where I moved to. And uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I really like teaching because it's kind of like almost a full circle for me, having started at such a young age and then giving a kid his first cornet or trumpet or anything. It's kind of like, yeah, going right back to the start for me <laughs> in a weird way. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely enjoyable. That's cool. I used to teach uh, swim lessons. That was one of the things that I always paid my bills with, lifeguarding and teaching, teaching swim lessons. And still, it's one of the most rewarding jobs I've had, like working, working with kids, teaching them a life skill. It's fun to see someone, like especially a kid's face light up when they're like, oh, wow, like when they figure out that they can do something on their own. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. It's, it's kind of funny because sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not a great teacher, but then you get this little breakthrough. Like it seems to happen where all the kids do it in the same room, where they all just seem to click and then move to the next step. Like they progress a little bit with whatever they're trying. And it, yeah, you're right. It's great to see that. Yeah, I felt like I would kind of live from one of those moments to the next. And in between, it's just like, Oh man, like I don't know if this is working, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, he's got it, and now on to the next yeah. thing. And they have no idea what they did that way, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also good for for us as like for the teacher. I mean, different jobs I've had always, in some aspect, involves learning something and then turning around and teaching the person behind you, mm -hmm. and that's when people go from like. Uh, being able to do a job to being very good and, and efficient at a job. It's when you can turn around and teach somebody else because then you have to unpack everything that you know in a way that makes sense to another person. Um, and that's very valuable to have to do that for someone else because you, you start to understand it on a better level. So I've always found teaching to be a very valuable uh, skill to spend time developing. Yeah, definitely. And how did you start working? Uh, so we know each other through that pitch. That's how we met. Yes. Um, but how did you 
teaching for five years and how did you come in to start writing? I kind of uh, jumped through your Facebook and your band camp and saw that you've been working on some like atmospheric ambient type of compositions. Yeah. So how did you start into that and when did you start into that? Um, that was actually, I mean, I started kind of writing my own stuff when I was about 17. I'd gotten an Apple MacBook with GarageBand and uh, I just played my guitar straight to the lining <laughs> and uh, I'd messed around with some reverb and a, a few kind of chords and yeah, I actually kind of started writing stuff like music in, in mind where I wanted to fall asleep to it kind of thing. Not in a boring way, but I, I was super into Sigur Ross at that age, at 17. Okay. That shaped a lot of my musical writing at the start. Didn't sound anywhere near as good as those guys. But yeah. It kind of turned into something that I, I just started to take seriously. The more I learned about music technology and how to make things sound a certain way, and what that effect was and, and all that kind of stuff. I'd already kind of played and tried a lot of different instruments just from all my kind of school years and getting out and performing, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and then I was able to record it all of a sudden, so I just jumped at the chance. I think, so the first, the first time me and some friends got together and recorded, we literally just put a cassette in this little cassette recording machine and played some horrible noises in the garage. <laughs> you know, I was on the drums. I say horrible music. It was it was hardcore, like punk, that kind of stuff. And the takes sounded awful. <laughs> uh, we couldn't really make anything out, but as far as we were concerned, we just recorded an EP. So <laughs> that, uh, that was interesting. And then go and record it properly at someone's house. Uh, Sounds a little better. That was my first real experience of recording. I was, I was on the drums in this hardcore band, actually. Uh, I just discovered how to do blast beats, and then my friends were like, okay, let's, let's start a band. <laughs> um, simpler times. Oh, way simpler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, how did you, right now, you're still teaching? and your writing and what does your balance look like as far as like how much time do you spend writing and submitting to pitches is that what you focus on with your writing is submitting to sync licensing yeah. pitches or so it's something so i've kind of you know how you kind of come home and you on something new there's no real outcome um, maybe you just, or maybe I've just bought like a new instrument or a new plugin, and I'm going to try something. So you get something down, and then it, it turns into a track that I have absolutely no intention of using for anything. Um, and then, then, then I hear that you can do some syncing opportunities, and I'm like, okay, what's syncing? And then that's obviously the, the route into getting the music out there and being used by other people. So. I checked out a couple of other um, licensing groups that had worked for other people, but and and tried syncing opportunities with them. One of them is Centric, which Franco had used before, but I think he'd obviously had a lot of traction with his performance and the label 
And so that kind of just worked for him, I think. Whereas uh, me sending in any old track that I'd written and just kept on my hard drive didn't seem to be doing anything for him. But anyway, maybe, yeah, that's, that's just how it goes, I guess. Um, regards to that pitch, it's just something that I've only just recently come across over the last month or so. But on the face of it, it looks so much better than a lot of the other routes that I've tried because of the fact that I'm here talking to you, for example. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, like I can actually talk to the guys who are kind of running it, which is... Right. That's a big difference. I, so in 2012, 2011, 2012, that's when I first started thinking like, oh, maybe I, maybe I could get something onto a commercial. Um, I didn't even know it was called Sync then, but there was a company called Pump Audio. And by coincidence, they happened to be like a half an hour down the road from a studio that I was engineering at. I've never met anyone who worked there. I don't, I, there's no um, face to face with anybody. And the studio owner who was in all senses, he was my mentor as far as audio engineering was concerned. Um, he really took me under his wing and kind of showed me his way of, of producing and recording. He was like, kind of impressed, I guess. I don't know if impressed is the right word. He was surprised when I brought in some compositions and said, like, yeah, I've been working on these and I played them at the studio. And he was like, this is what you should be spending your time on. Like, this is great. You could really get this into a, a show, a commercial. Like, this could be great for visual media. So that felt very encouraging. So, yeah, their whole platform was online, which was not as common in 2012 as it is now. Um, and music libraries were just kind of getting off the ground. So people, there were companies who were basically selling hard drives, you know, like the old school MyBook. Um, you know, they were, they were basically mailers where, where I interned for a company that did this. They were called The Lodge. And I would stuff envelopes, you know, it'd be a flash drive, a little a menu. They had like a diner theme. Um, and the menu would have the tracks and the terms and conditions and stuff and, and some merchandise and you'd mail it off to their clients. And uh, I wanted to write for them. That opportunity didn't work out. So flash forward, I'm writing and submitting to Pump Audio online. Well, you have to be screened for quality first. So that takes a long time. And I ended up getting what they call green lit. So they took six of my tracks, which I submitted as a, like as a demo or whatever, as an EP. And two of them were placed in like on HGTV and some other show in Germany. Well, I never saw the shows. I never, all I got was like, here's your, here's 35 bucks for, that's your fee, that's your cut. Uh, and that's it, man. I never saw, it's network television, so unless you tuned in live, I couldn't see it. I couldn't find anything online, any of these like pirated streaming sites of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and even today, I still can't find the episodes that my music was featured on. So I walk away with nothing for my portfolio, no new people, no new contacts. You know, my network is no bigger. I basically just hold myself up in my house 
recording these songs for for $35. And that's the end of that. Um, but the process took a very long time. So when I came across that pitch, who has nothing to do with this podcast, by the way, <laughs> there, there's no sponsorship or anything, but uh, they've been really great for me. So, uh, so I want to talk about it with you. When I came across them, being able to message Enoch, yeah. he called me. Yeah. I sent him a message and he called me and was like, hey, do you have time to talk? Yeah. I have some ideas. And that, that just was like, this is what I want. Like, I want to work with people and talk with people and, like, you know, brainstorm a little bit and figure out, like, what can I do differently? Um, so that's so different than every other music library platform is a very one-way type of communication. Um, and you never know, like, what's what opportunities are are the best, which ones are being flooded, which ones are not getting a lot of submissions. You never know. Um, really much of anything except that they did receive your tracks and they're on their platform. But you don't know how to make anything move. You know, you don't know how to get anything to traction. So I got really turned off by that because I spent so much time and obviously some of my money on gear and like and getting up and running with that for like no return, either through like self-education uh, career development and like developing my craft and monetary return. It was all like so low. I just felt like this is not the way. Um, so to see a company doing it a little bit differently is very encouraging because that company that I started with, they were bought up by Getty Images who owns like the biggest stock photo and stock footage and stock music libraries on the planet. And so all of my music just disappeared. Like it was absorbed at first and kind of buried. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was, I think three or four months ago, they completely closed the music service and referred all their clients to, um, I think Epidemic Sound. They are, a music library and they operate like a record label. You get like, you have to get selected basically. You apply, if they select you, then you get paired with like an artist developer. Yeah. Um, and they work with you on like the quality of your tracks, which that also sounds like a great approach because there's an element where it's like, let's take these musicians who have, who we see as having potential and like develop them a little bit. I think that's missing um, in a lot of aspects of the of the independent music industry, like the development aspect of okay, you write songs, like let's work together. We can we can improve it. We can hone your craft. It's a lot more common to find someone who's just kind of like in their own little world, just uh, working on it on their own, which. I suppose there's nothing wrong with it. For me, it doesn't feel like a healthy way to live. Um, yeah. I need to like interact with people like this. Yeah. Um, but I feel the same way as, as you do. It's great to meet other people who are going through the same stuff and, and meet some people who maybe have more or different experience to kind of 
learn from. Yeah, yeah, true. It sounds like you have kind of a routine or a little bit of a, an idea of like how to allocate your time in terms of what teaching demands from you, what writing and kind of developing yourself as a composer demands from you. So I guess my, the other thing I'd like to hear about is like, where do you see it going for you? Like, what do you see? What kind of changes do you see for yourself happening? And well, are, you, are you kind of in the sweet spot now uh, where, where you want to be and you just want to keep going? Um, well, I don't know. I kind of, I get restless every few years anyway. So there will be, I think there'll be some kind of, need to want to try something different and that'll demand some sort of shift in how I delegate myself my time. But um, I think over the past few years, I've managed to release those three ambient records through a friend's label. Um, I think it's, it's worth mentioning, actually, the guy called Zen Jigo, who goes by the name of Cremation, really. And... Uh, He's, he's um, yeah, he's someone worth checking out if you like um, industrial ambient kind of thing. Um, and he runs his own label, which he's released my stuff with, and it's a cassette-based label. But he also performs, and, and that's his bread and butter. He like he he's built this thing to to live off, live from basically. <laughs> his um, label. Yeah, if made, yeah, if you. Should maybe try and reach out to him actually because he's, he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, that'd be great. Actually, I have a question that's like a cultural thing. I've read when I, in some research with people from the UK. What do you mean when you say it's a cassette label? Ah, uh, so he, he released music only on cassette. Oh, literally only for cassettes. Because I saw your Bandcamp page and your, uh, I noticed you were sold out of, you had like cassette plus digital album packs and I noticed you were sold out of some of your merch and I looked at it, it, it was cassettes, which I thought was like very retro, very cool. Yeah, it's a thing, it's a, there's, a, there's a, I mean, I guess there is a community of people who like kind of dedicate themselves to it and they enjoy using cassettes and listening to it. Yeah, it's a different experience. I mean, I, I grew up in that time when cassettes were on their way out and discs were coming in. And I remember going to a store called The Wall, uh, yeah. which, which I don't know if they have it in the UK, but in the US, The Wall was this big music retail store. Um, and they just, it was just like, I forget how they came up with their name, but it had something to do with like the way they arranged the, the discs on, the, on a big wall in their flagship store. Um, but yeah, you would just go into this place and it's just lined wall to wall with albums and cassettes. And uh, it was an experience to go like get somebody's new music. And then, and then a time when they overlap where, where I was like, do I want the cassette or the CD? Like, uh, I don't know. Do I want to carry it on my Walkman or do I want to listen to it at home? Was kind of how that first went. But there's something cool about um, like holding someone's artwork and getting to look at their artwork in real life. I had a DJ friend and another guy who from Connecticut who was in a hip hop group and they both released on cassettes. And uh, I don't even have a cassette player. I bought them because I wanted A, because I wanted to support them, and B, because I wanted the artwork. 
<laughs> there's, there's definitely a, a market for it. Strange Rules, which was Zen's label, started out as a DIY thing for him and his own music. And then it just turned into something where he kind of brought his friends into it and other collaborators and released their music on a cassette as well. And he, he'll make everything, like he'll do the imagery, he'll do the artwork. Um, yeah, it all, all comes from his kind of room in his, his house. And yeah, it's kind of cool because he also uses the tapes live as well. And he has a lot of like loops going round and round. Like one of the endless loop tapes. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's really, really good at creating an atmosphere in his sets. <laughs> and uh, and he, he's been over to uh, the US uh, fairly recently. I think it was last year. Um, supporting Wicker Phase, who I believe used to be the old singer of Tiger's Jewel. I can't remember. Okay. Um, cool. But they're, they're very popular. That's a popular group. So it's going well for him. And uh, I think he's also done some collaborations with Jeff Ripley from Thursday as well. Oh, Thursday, <laughs> that's my music, man. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I'm from upstate New York, which uh, is not far from Jersey. But yeah, like me, all, really all my friends I grew up with were really into Thursday, Coheed and Cambria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's kind of like our wheelhouse. Um, man, that's Same cool. with people in Norwich. It's that's kind of like the scene that happened here. All that kind of music. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so, did you feel like getting into this style of music was easy for you? Because I've talked. This comes up, I guess, because it's on my mind a lot. Is that we put a lot of types of uh creative disciplines into like a box and for music that means a genre so if somebody asks you like what kind of music do you write you need to have a short answer that they understand yeah. uh, and ambient is maybe more obscure than saying like oh i'm i write country or hip-hop but it's a box and people can go home and look up ambient music and kind of immediately understand what that is at face value so was that natural for you to kind of stamp that on the type of writing you do? Or did you, like, how did you come to identify as like an ambient writer? I kind of don't like writing stuff with a beat. You know what I mean? Like, I, I when I say beat, I mean like drums or some kind of structure. You know? mm -hmm. um, and it kind of just started where I just took pure enjoyment out of making drum kind of sounds and then building this whole thing up together with various sounds that I've created. <laughs> it's, I don't know what it is. I can never describe what I do. I don't know. I'm just not good with words. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It kind of, it just comes from sitting down and just playing something. And then... Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about ambient is that, like, in my, in, in a lot of senses, when you use the rules of tonal harmony, there's a limit to how many songs and how many things you can write you know there's only 12 notes there's only so many chords and the voicings of those chords and sure that's like an incomprehensible amount of them to like yeah. sit down and use them all but over the course of the history of music most of it's been done already so the last frontier is 
texture, is tone. And ambient music is all about, you know, how, for me, it's about like, how weird can I make this chord sound or like what kind of uh, noises can I put behind it to make it seem like something that's never been heard before. Uh, and you can't do that with like a major scale and a one, four, five, you know, most, most likely something like that's been done before, but with ambient music, I, I see it as something like boundless, like it's just, yeah. Even if you've done something before, you can take that sound and then layer two more on top of it, and it's different. Um, yeah. That's what appeals to me for for that style of writing. And also, I just feel it's almost like a, like meditative, like um, yeah. therapeutic for me to sit down and write. And sometimes I'll write for a long time and just be like, "Well, that was garbage," but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed like experimenting with the instrument. Um, but but then also felt like no, I don't necessarily need that recorded to share with people. Like it was just for me, I guess. Yeah, I kind of when when I when I come to picking what I want to release, it tends to be um, some some kind of music that could kind of easily put people at ease. I think that's the the thing I want to try and convey, which is why uh, it gets used often for people I know that do yoga classes. They're, yeah, they're, that's that's kind of how we led into sitting down to talk. Yeah. My wife is a yoga instructor. Um, and I've only just gotten into ambient music, so I haven't reached out or like, you know, asked her, can you do something with this and see if your teachers want to use it? But it's a tricky market too because you know, teachers have free music at their disposal. They can just link a playlist to their Zoom classes that they're teaching now. So it really has to be somebody that you know that wants to share your music um, rather than just having a playlist which is curated by a professional. Uh, so I, I like that approach now to music is like, like this, talking with people um, and having a relationship with the people because it's just so it's so much better than just like sending a lot of the libraries that we mentioned earlier, like their approach to business is just like, give us everything you've ever done and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And that just feels so cheap, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've, I've still got a, still got a lot to kind of experience really in terms of like just passing my music over to someone who's going to do something. Still very early days for me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I mean, I've been writing for a very long time in different styles, but um, I guess this past year I've spent a lot of time just kind of building my portfolio up again, yeah. at more from the standpoint of being like a writer instead of an engineer. Um, yeah. So I feel like I've started over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like, if I wasn't performing sometimes, then I'd, I'd do some sound engineering as well for live shows, um, which is obviously not happening so much at the moment. And that's also where I've managed to find a bit more time to kind of look back at all the tracks that I wasn't going to do anything with, work them into something musical, and then submit it for something like a sync. And yeah. that's where I found some time to do that kind of thing. Um, and 
yeah, I'm going to try and make some more time for it, really. Give it, give it the sort of space it needs to kind of turn into something. That's awesome. I think it's, it's really valuable for a lot of people with a backlog of like unfinished ideas, um, especially if you've got writer's block to just kind of go back and organize all of that stuff. I bet you'll find maybe like I have some stuff from 2008 talking about being like a teenager, you know, writing songs about angst, um, terrible, terrible arrangements of them. But some of the more basic fundamental ideas in the, in the song, they're workable. So I grab those and I turn them into something else. Um, especially when I have writer's block, it gives mm -hmm. me a, a place to start, even if I don't finish in the same place, you know, I definitely think there's value in that. It's, it's good. I think it's good that you're doing that, taking that approach, especially good that you're staying optimistic that, that the time is a gift and not something that was taken from you. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, and lots of time we're going to do something. As people, we need to fill space with something. Yeah. I've got a question that I've been asking my guests kind of as like a way to kind of wrap things up. Yeah. If you could meet anybody from, you know, past, present, future, any time period, to ask them for some advice, who would you want to meet and what would you want to ask them? And I know I'm blindsiding you, so I'll tell you, I'll give you a little bit of help. Some people kind of steer into the direction of, oh, since we're talking about this, uh, they tell me who inspires them the most, um, but it doesn't have to be that. Yeah, okay, that is a tough one. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I would be someone in the in the music world, I guess. I've always, I've, I think it's still that Rupert Neve would be a pretty interesting guy to me. Did you say Rupert Neve? Yeah, yeah. That's probably a rubbish answer, but uh, I'm kind of interested in like what. Maybe, I, maybe don't put that in. I don't know. <laughs> no, actually. Uh, your voice broke up, so that's why I asked who it was. But I happen to know a little bit about his story. Um, yeah, he. I know that he. So did, his company was bought, and the trademark of his company is his name, and so his name was bought, and he no longer owns it. I think it would be really cool to meet Rupert Neve, especially as someone who was primarily studied to be an engineer. So. What yeah. would you ask Rupert Neve if, if you could meet him? At what point did he definitely commit to everything he was doing? Because he must have been, well, obviously he must have been, he was definitely our age once, and I'm sure he was much more kind of uh, solid with his career choice by that point than I am. But, um, yeah, I wondered whether that was something he just committed to since day dot or... Or, or what else did he do in his life? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I always wonder that. But when I hear a story, I'm like, yeah, but what else? Yeah. Like, what? where did this person come from? There's no way they just yeah. started doing it. Like, what? what's the rest of the story? That's what I'm always interested in hearing, which I guess is why I was interested in, like, starting this podcast project. 
because I like knowing like what was the hard part and how did you make it work that's the part that's like the most important to me in every person's story but it's also the part that gets cut out of every person's story as they go as they move on in life and like they accept that they've succeeded and stuff it just becomes like well yeah you know I graduated high school um I went to college for whatever and then after college, I had a job as a waiter for a while, and then I made it, and here I am. Uh, and there's always a lot missing there, so I, I like that answer. It was really cool to hear your story, man. I, yeah, I feel like everybody in in the group has a story that we don't know about. Like you, you were signed. That's really cool that you were part of a signed group, and you have a huge, long history with different instruments and teaching. Um, so really cool to hear your story and I wish you the best luck with your fiance and your new house. I suppose, I suppose you don't need luck with your fiance. You already picked the perfect woman, but I wish yeah. you good luck with the house and the move. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. I'm gonna... That's all for this episode. You can find links in the show notes to Daniel's past and present projects and a little more on the history of Rupert Neve. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. Thanks for listening to On My Own Dime.